Chapter 17, I want to pick up. I think last week we were interrupted by a voters' assembly. And my understanding is we'll have another voters' assembly next week. I think some of these sheets have been passed around. If you didn't get one, there are some at the information desk too. Just kind of these question and answer sheets have been added to a little bit. And I also want to make sure that I point out today we've got some clipboards going around because preschool, we've got the father, um, kind of father kid day coming up. And we'd love to have some of you, if you'd be willing to give up an hour or two, just serve as greeters at that. So when the clipboard comes by, that's what that's about. Uh, chapter 17, we didn't get too far, but we started into this. This is um, kind of, again, kind of going back to what I'm going to call the, the first of the last four scenes that make up uh, the book of Revelation. And so if you think about it, the, the Revelation is going to end on a strong note pointing to the victory of Jesus Christ over sin, death, and, and our enemies. Beginning scene number one, where we are in chapter 17 with the destruction of what we would call the, the, the political beast, the political beast. And I was thinking about this when we were uh, uh, getting ready for today that, you know, you see the political beast at work in a number of different ways, but probably people in our world don't necessarily recognize it. Okay, so maybe you caught this or maybe you didn't catch this, but um, there was a case that went to the Texas grand jury that um, kind of, in my, in my mind, exemplifies what we're going to talk about here when we talk about the, the beast, the political beast. And, and what, what the case had to do with, it had to do with this film that probably many of us saw on the internet where these people went undercover into Planned Parenthood and they videoed what was going on and they had this conversation with this person who was very interested in selling body parts of aborted children. And I mean, when that thing hit the internet, it was like, oh my gosh, what in the world is going on? This is, I mean, it's horrifying. Well, here comes the case to the Texas grand jury. And um, the question is, what are you going to do with, with the, what would you do with Planned Parenthood with what they're doing is, it's not, it's not right. So what they did is, is they, uh, they indicted uh, the people who made the videos. Not Planned Parenthood, the people that made the videos. They said, what you've done is illegal. And um, you're going to have to you know, pay for what, what you've done. And I look at that and I think that, if that doesn't shout out beast, I don't know what does. Because you have an example of a government that would say, we're going to protect this organization that is going to kill and chop up and sell children. And yet the people that are trying to say, Let, let's expose that. And, oh, no, 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 we're going to put you in jail, right? So um, what we're talking about in chapter 17 is, is that, the whole of political systems that are about a different kingdom than God's kingdom. I'm going to read through this first part real quickly because we, we've gone through it and then we're going to jump in. It says, one of the seven angels uh, who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come and I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, 
and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Okay, and and sometimes when we read this, we we kind of get our Western minds on, and think that this is about sex, and it is not. Okay, when it says, "I want to show you the great prostitute," okay, um, the prostitute is is meant to be in, in this case someone or something that cause, causes you to stray from or abandon the, the, the proper marriage that God wants you to have with him. Okay. And so when you talk about this prostitute with whom the kings of earth have committed sexual immorality, the, the Greek words that are used there are broader than our English words. Sexual immorality could, could probably best be translated in our English Bibles with whom they have committed spiritual adultery. That's probably the best interpretation of it, okay? Because what's happening is you have, you have throughout the Bible this scene of a God who says, I want intimacy with you in a relationship. And I want, to, I want the kind of relationship that happens between what? A husband and a wife. That kind of intimacy. And you see it in the garden immediately with Adam and Eve. And, and you, you read this little note where after the fall, God is walking in the garden. And, and immediately you realize, you know what? God has been here, walking in the garden. That's not just hyperbole or metaphor. There's a God walking in the garden. There's an intimacy there. After that fall, right, what happens is, is Satan has said, let's, let's separate you from God. Let's put something between you. That, that something is sin. And what's happened since the fall is God says, I want to restore my relationship with you, and I'm going to restore it through my son Jesus Christ and his, his death on the cross, all the way to the very end, so that when we get to the end of time, I'm going to come back down the aisle, the groom, waiting for you, my bride, and we're going to have restored intimacy for the rest of our lives. So what Satan is always trying to do is to cause you to commit spiritual adultery, to fall in love with or to make something in your life more important than he is. And so that's what the political kingdom, that's what our worldly kingdom, our cosmos is about. And, and it's exactly what John is pointing to when he uses uh, under inspiration this, this kind of language. I want you to see the great prostitute seated upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sold, uh, sexual immorality, spiritual adultery, and with the wine of whose spiritual adultery the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And I kind of like that imagery because it's a picture of our world that 24 hours a day, um, I can turn on news channels, multiple ones. I can listen to, to, to the radio. I watch my television. I read my newspaper. None of it, none of it talks to me about who I really am and what's really going on here on earth. The cosmos, our world, has made all of these things important that have zero importance in the kingdom of God, right? Um, and so where, where do I go to find truth, to find here's what's really going on in our lives and in our world? Well, you've got to come to Scripture. 
And what scripture does is it helps us see, okay, that this world is calling us, come. This is what you need in your life. This is what's going to be good for you. These are the answers to your ills. This is, this is what's going to make you. Get, have your identity in the world. God says, no, have your identity solely in me. All right, let's go to verse number three. Kind of interesting. This is where we'll pick up. It says, and, and he, he, now this is the spirit, car- carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Okay, so John starts off, and he sees the angel pour out the bull of wrath, and he sees this adultery, this prostitute, and and the kings of the earth have committed adultery. And then all of a sudden, the spirit sweeps him away, and he's in the wilderness. Why is that important? Now I'm in the wilderness. Why is that important? I'll show you the answer to it, and you've seen it, and let's see if it clicks for you. Just, Just flip back a couple of pages to Revelation chapter 12. When we talk about the war that's going on in our lives, for for our hearts, for our souls, for my kids' souls, for my grandkids' souls, that war is very real. And I don't think there's a place in the Bible that you see it more clearly than Revelation chapter 12. Um, And if you you look at it, uh, I just want to make sure I get this, get my place right so that I give you... Okay, go to verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, the dragon is Satan. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. This is that period of time after Jesus Christ has been born, right? And um, Satan wants to, to kill the child and is working through, believe it or not, political agencies, i.e. a king. His name was Herod. Herod is doing what? I'm trying to kill the male children in Israel. But what happens? Verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent. Well, remember what happens is Mary and Joseph are visited by, right, an angel who says to them, escape to where? Egypt, right? And so they're, they're spared from death. Satan's plans are thwarted. Now, just notice these next words. So that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and a times and a half a times. So when she flees and she goes literally into Egypt, the way the revelation paints it is she flees into the wilderness to be nurtured and nourished by God. Remember, remember all the wilderness scenes of the scripture. In particular, remember that Jesus goes out into the wilderness during the time of temptation. And what he is faced with is an onslaught from the, the dragon, his enemy, again trying to separate Jesus from his father. And yet what's happening is God is nourishing, keeping, holding on to, right, uh, Jesus during that time, same thing happens with the woman who goes into the wilderness. The woman represents the whole of the church. We're in the wilderness today. We're like exiles living in a land that is a wilderness. Where is Satan? Well, Satan doesn't just sit still. He pursues the woman, and he pursues the child of the woman. That's you and me. 
And so it should not be surprising to us that when you come back over here to chapter 17, when John is swept in the spirit out into the wilderness, who does he see? Satan. At work. Continuing to pursue you and I with his lies, his deceptions, seeking to, to cause us to be separated from the one who wants that intimacy uh, with us. Okay, now, look at some of the details. Carried me away in the spirit of the wilderness. I see this woman now sitting on a scarlet beast. Okay, so um, the, the woman, the prostitute, if you will, is, is now on this, this beast. It's a scarlet beast. Scarlet happens to be a royal color, right? So in the time this was written, uh, if I were walking around and just looking at people in Rome, a lot of the, the, the rulers, right, or people of, of the Senate uh, would have, you know, scarlet sashes or ropes. And so I would associate that with what? The politic of the day. It's the political beast that we're looking at. The beast was full of blasphemous names, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, later on, we're going to find out what those seven heads and ten horns are. But, but it's consistent. We've seen this before. The beast always tries to look like who? The good guy. Seven is Jesus' number. Ten is Yahweh's number. So this beast, seven heads, ten horns, it's like Satan does not set himself up to look like a, a, a bad guy. He always sets himself to, up to do what? To look like, I'm the good guy. This is the right stuff. This is good stuff, not bad stuff. Okay? Um, and, and, and so in this case, the, the politic is set up to say, no, we're not bad. We're, we're actually good. We, you know, we, we're, we're here to, to serve you and to, to, to help you. Okay? Full of blasphemous names. In the time that this was written, it's kind of interesting that uh, Rome as a politic, I think we, we could learn a lot from this in America. Rome as a politic uh, initially was, was built around virtues and principles. But as you trace Roman history, by the time you get into the, you know, the uh, 60s and 70s, uh, you start to see some real changes. And particularly in the 70s forward, one of those changes is the, the, the Roman rulers, the emperors, were having problems with people uh, because Rome was getting uh, to a place where taxes were outrageous. Um, the economy was not doing good. Rome was spread out too far in terms of its, its warfare and its ability. Uh, they had a, a kind of a foreign policy that would look a little bit like America's. We're the, we're the gatekeepers of the world. And what started to happen is terrorists, literally terrorists on the outer edges of Rome, started to win battles and Rome's military prowess began to decline. With all of its taxation, Rome couldn't support its military the way that it always had. Does this sound familiar to you guys at all? Taxes began to raise. Hmm, this is sounding a little bit familiar to me. And guess what? The, the citizenry became a little bit un, unglued. We don't like what's going on. So the Roman rulers, in order to, to maintain their power, began to, to take on to themselves divine names. 
it would not be uncommon in that time frame to have a, a Roman ruler refer to himself as, I am your kurios, I am your lord. So a title that we typically associate with Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord. The Roman ruler said, I am Lord, I'm kurios. Okay? Or, a little bit worse, soter. Soter literally translates savior. I am your savior, Rome. I am the one that you owe homage to. Or, even worse yet, Cosmocrator, okay? If you ever go to a, a Greek Orthodox church, it's kind of fun to, to, to look at the iconography that they have. Uh, last, last time I went, we were at a, at a funeral. I remember sitting down, and if, if you look up, Anne says, look up there. And, and, and so we had all these men looking down at us because, you know, you've seen these Greek Orthodox churches have the big, like a big dome at the top, and they're painted... And they usually have some of the old Greek church fathers that are looking down at you. And so Anne says, I'm getting uncomfortable. Those guys are looking at me. I'm like, yeah. And uh, she says, what's that word right there? It was this word right here, cosmocrator. It means the maker of the world, the one who has created the world. And emperors literally called themselves that. I am Cosmocrator. I am Kurios. I am the one that you owe homage to. And so that, so that, that makes sense to the reader of the Revelation. As they're hearing these words for the first time, the scarlet, oh, this is politics. People who are above us that are saying, we're the ones who really have the answers to life. We're the ones who keep the world in order. And that's what, that's what uh, we're looking at. Pretending to be what? Good, of God. We're with the gods. And we will serve you well. Go to verse 4. The, the woman was arrayed in purple, scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her spiritual immorality. So when you look at the woman, she is arrayed with the, the, earth, the, the wealth and the stuff of the earth. Okay? Um, the other day, I, somebody had said to me, oh, hey, I want you to go look at this YouTube. So one of you guys sent me a YouTube. And I, I think I went to look at it. And... Um, you click on this button and, and the YouTube's supposed to pop up. Well, when it pops up, instead of the YouTube popping up, a little, you guys ever see this little box, a little advertisement pops up? And then it says, you can skip this ad in one minute. I think that's how they make money, right? Yeah, we, maybe we need that on our new website. We'll some box will pop up. <laughs> anyway. I started watching, and there's, in this box, this guy's walking around, and he's got this huge house, and he's like talking about his house, and you know, I used to be sleeping on a couch, and now I've got this house, and I want you to see, this is my guest house, there's my pool, here's my tennis courts, here's my weight room, and I'm sitting there looking at that, and I'm thinking, that's all the world has. The best the world has to give you is trinkets and junk. That falls apart. That, that melts down, and yet think about how much of our lives are spent pursuing that junk. That's all it has. And so this, this woman sitting on the beast, she's calling out to you, don't you want this? You come, and, come and be, come and get your identity in me. 
Come and find your well-being in me. Not, not in God. You don't need that God stuff. Come find your well-being in me. What is it that separates us from the intimacy that Jesus Christ wants to have with us? This is the stuff of the world that she is adorned with. But what gives her away is the cup in her hands. A golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of spiritual adultery. In her cup, we're going to see, is not the blood of Jesus Christ, which you receive when you take communion, but in her cup is the blood of the followers of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. The political beast is not neutral towards Christianity. Not neutral towards Christianity. But has an agenda against Christianity. Make no mistake about it. Do not let anyone tell you otherwise. It is a fact of history. And it is a fact of today. It's what makes this kind of report when I get it um, and somebody sends it to me. I'm not surprised. Yeah, put those... How dare those people come in here and expose that we're chopping up children and, and selling their parts? How dare they do that? Put them in jail. I'm not surprised by that. Has an agenda against Christianity. There's no question about it. It goes on to say, and on her forehead, remember, remember that you, you get stamped on your forehead or upon your hand uh, as a slave. You get, you get the name of the one to whom you belong to. Well, on her forehead was written... A name of mystery. Babylon, the great, mother of prostitutes, and earth's abominations. Okay? I want to say two things here that I think are kind of, kind of important uh, to, to point out. First of all is the, the intentional use of this word mystery. On her was written a name of mysterion, mystery. What does that mean, literally? Well, one of my favorite passages when it comes to, to this term, mysterion, is, is in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 2. Now, let's just flip over there for a minute, because I think this is worth making a point about. 1 Corinthians 2, we're going to look at verses 1 to 9, okay? 1 Corinthians 2, let's look at verses 1 to 9. Paul is now in the heart of the beast, Corinth. If you've, if you've never been to Corinth, when you walk into Corinth, it is an absolutely phenomenally beautiful city. Okay. Um, you know, have you heard of the Roman Acropolis? For me, the, the Corinthian Acropolis was really awesome to see. It's beautiful, but guess who it belonged to? Prostitutes. The prostitutes in Corinth lived up on the Acropolis. Acropolis means, Acros means the high. Palas means city. So every city had an Acropolis, the highest point of the city. And, and so you would see the highest point of the city was this temple, and, and it belonged to the, the, the prostitutes who would come down to meet, to meet the men when they would come into to town, particularly off of the sea. And so Paul, when he goes into Corinth, he goes in with, armed with just the word of God, believing that this God that I follow is going to take this city, this city of Corinth, and turn it upside down. But notice what he says about the wisdom of God. This is interesting to me. I'm just going to read through it quickly, but let it, let it come into your ear. 
says, and, and, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come, proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In Corinth, and, and in most of Rome, if you were, if you were, uh, wanted to, 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 to serve as a leader, you would be taught the art of rhetoric. And the art of rhetoric is a rigorous art, still around today. You know, I've got a buddy that's got a PhD in, in, in rhetoric. Yeah, in rhetoric. Um, it's a rigorous art. It's, it's not easy to learn, and it's highly polished speech. Um, you, if you were going to be on a debate stage like we saw, you know, the, the Republican, you, you would want to learn rhetoric. What Paul, Paul says here is I, when I speak about Jesus Christ, he's saying, I'm choosing not to use lofty speech or man's wisdom. I'm not going to come and speak the speak of the politic, of the world, of the cosmos. I'm not going to do that. There's no power in it. There's deception in it. Okay? He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Most people, when they heard Paul speak, if they were polished, if they were, if they were somebody in society, they'd say, who is that guy? He doesn't even make any sense. Remember what they called him on the, uh, um, uh, when, he, when he went into um, uh, Athens? They called him a seed picker. He speaks like a chicken. He's like a chicken. Like, That's that, that guy saying, it makes no sense to us. Paul says, well, this, guess what? That's intentional. I'm not going to use your lofty language or worldly language. I'm, in fact, I choose to know nothing except something that offends you. Jesus Christ and him crucified. First, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I didn't come puffed out like, listen to me, I'm the, I'm the person. No, I came with weakness. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, i.e. man's wisdom, but in, this, in demonstration of the spirit of power that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I'm going to bring you a word from God. I want your faith to rest not, not in the stuff of this world, but on his word. Now, verse 6 says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart, now notice these next words, a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Okay, what's Paul saying? Kind of comes back to this term, mysterion. Here's John, I look and I see on the forehead of this beast a mystery. Well, mysterion refers to a very simple thought. You cannot understand truth. You cannot understand the wisdom of God apart from what? Conversion. Prior to, prior to me being converted in Jesus Christ, Christianity honestly sounds like gobbledygook. Made up stories, blah, 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 blah. 
when the Spirit of God is speaking into me through his word and my heart is converted, oh my gosh, I begin to see the world, who I am, what it means to be married, what it means to be a family, what purpose is, everything changes. All of that changes. Doesn't change overnight, but what does change overnight is my ability now to hear God. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, he's saying, guess what? The rulers of this world cannot even hear God. They can't hear his wisdom, right? Until I'm a converted soul, now I hear God and I go, that's what is truth, okay? So when I look at what's going on in the Revelation, here's, here's John and he's being swept away in the spirit and he sees this, this, this woman and with these blasphemous names on, on the beast and all of a sudden on the forehead is this mysterious name. And what is the name? Babylon, mother of prostitutes. Well, a Roman soldier, if they were to pick up the Revelation and read that, they'd be like, what is this stuff? Babylon? Babylon's been gone for a long time. The Christian reads it and says, Babylon is a symbol for what? What was Babylon? A world power. A politic like none other. That said, we, we are the rulers of this world. This is the stuff that you ought to seek after. And so symbolically, we can look at it today and go, oh, we know exactly who that is. That is the political beast of this cosmos who's put on the stuff of this world and is calling men away from Jesus Christ to, to, in, to become married to, to become intimate with the things of this world. We know who this woman is. And sadly, look at verse number six, sadly, she is drunk. She is drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. So when John looks at her, she is filled up with the blood of the martyrs because make no mistake about it, the political beast is after one thing, the destruction of Christianity. The destruction of it. Um, so what happens to John? I, I like these next words. It says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Okay? Um, the term that's used here uh, to, to marvel greatly is, does not mean I looked at her and went, oh, wow, this is marvelous. No. What it, what it connotates is when he says, I marveled greatly is, here is John, and he is converted. And now he's being swept away and shown these things, but even he looks at this and goes, I don't think I can figure all this. I don't, I, I'm not getting all this. I'm not able to put it all together. So who comes to the rescue? It says, but the angel said to me, always an angel. It's, my, it's one of my favorite parts of the revelation. John is always looking at things going, what's that? The angel is always coming to tell John what it is. And every time the angel comes, you'll see it again here. Here's what, here's what the angel says to him. Why do you marvel? That's actually funny. The angels always come into us human beings going, don't you get this? You mean you don't know what that is? Why? Because unlike us, every single angel made, made by God, including fallen angels, every single angel made by God, knows exactly what's going on right now, right here today knows what's going on in your life. 
there's a war being fought. Every fallen angel knows there's going to come a time. Jesus returns. The marriage is going to take place. And before that time, my goal in life is to, is to find Luke. Put your name in the blank. And figure out a way to separate him from Jesus Christ. And he never comes looking like a monster or a beast. He always comes looking what? I'm the good guy. This is good stuff. And so... What is happening is John is trying to figure it out. The angel is coming along saying, um, John, this war has always been going on and will until the, last, until the last day. Why are you marveling at what you're seeing? Don't you understand it? If John were to speak back to the angel, he'd say something like this. Uh, no, could I get the cleft notes on this? Or something like that. He doesn't know. So, here's what the angel does. He says, I will tell you, I will tell you the mysteries of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carry her. Okay. Um, I'm just going to give you a kind of a, a, a warning as we go into this. This section, this next section that we're going to read, it really has a neat meaning to it. But it's also one of those sections of Revelation that gets ruined by a lot of people uh, because they try to figure out, they try to, they try to literalize too much of it. Okay? This, is, this is going to point to what's literally happening in our world and has been for a long time. It's going to point to what literally will happen in our world up until that last day. But what happens is too many people try to fill in the blanks and identify which nations of the earth are involved in this, and you'll get yourself all messed up. So, as we go through it, I'll try to make, make sense of it for you. Um, starts off verse, verse number eight. The angel says to John, the beast, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Okay. Significant words. Why? Because it's a play on words. God and his kingdom. How would we say it? God was and is and ever shall be. Was and is and ever shall be. What about Satan and his kingdom? This is the political beast we're talking about. Was Babylon. Is not. What happened to Babylon? What happens is these political beasts, political things rise up, proclaim to be the rulers of the world, and then what happens to them? They get smashed. Was and is not. Is about to be. Is about to do what? Is about to rise up from the bottomless pit. What, what the angel is pointing to, John 2, is the fact that there, ha there, there have been political beasts that have come and gone. There are political beasts that are going to rise up. This one in particular, he says, will rise up from the bottomless pit and then go to destruction. Now he's pointing us to the end time, the last time. What politic will rise up? Rise up from the bottomless pit. Remember, remember us reading about the plagues that come upon the earth in the half a time? One of them is the key to the bottomless pit 
opens it up, and what comes out? Demons of hell. Those demons of hell literally kill people. Can't do that today. Will do that. So what he's pointing to, John 2, is was, is not, will be. Politic will rise up during that period of time in the very end when aided by demons, this political beast will come against Christianity. Come against Christianity. And then it will go to its destruction. Okay. And it goes on to say, And the dwellers of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life, from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. When this happens, those people who are on earth who are outside of faith will try to find their meaning, their answer through that political beast. This is the answer for us. Okay. Um, second, just side note that I have to make because it's, it's that critical. What I want you to what I want you to hear this morning is, when was your name written in the book of life? Most of us think, well, I, my name was written in the book of life when I was baptized. I was baptized, I became a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, my, my name was written in the book of life. Uh, I heard this preacher and I said, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. No. When was your name written in the book of life? From the foundation of the world. Who talks about that more than anyone else in the scriptures? Paul talks about election. You go over to John and it is gospel, 15th chapter. Do you remember these words? You did not choose me. I chose you. When? From before the beginnings of the foundation of the earth. Our minds, can you understand that? No. Can we, do we ever really get that? I don't think so. But know that you have a God who said, I wrote your name in my book of life. Those who are outside of that book, they are going to try to find their answers in this political beast. They will marvel at it, the one that is to come. But they will not find their answers there. Okay. Now he says, verse number nine, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Back to the mysterion. You're not going to get this outside of faith. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, but when he does, he will remain for only a little while. I'm going to introduce this to you, and we'll pick back up with this next week. The seven hills that are referred to, or the seven heads that are seven hills, really pretty specifically take us to Rome. Rome as a city is the city of the seven hills, right? So if I'm listening to this, I'd say, okay, so um, you, you have these seven mountains upon which the woman is seated, and there also are seven kings. Well, who are those kings? So we'll pick up this with this next week, but what's happened is if you go through time, you have different historians who try to identify, here's who those seven were. And then most importantly, there's an eighth who belongs to the first seven who is to come. 
And that's where we're going to begin to kind of figure out, okay, what's going on in the world politic that has been going on for a long time? And what will it look like for my grandkids unless Jesus comes before? Let's pray.